Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to be praying out of Psalm 101. Heavenly Father, I will sing of your loving kindness and your justice. I will sing to you praises, Father. I will give heed to the blameless way. I will walk within my house with integrity in my heart. Father, we will not have worthless things before our eyes. We will hate the work of those who fall away. We will ask that a perverse heart would depart us and that we would not know evil. And we ask, Father, that no one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will endure within us, within our congregation. But, Father, instead I ask that our eyes be upon the fruitful and the faithful of the land and that they would walk in blamelessness as you minister to us, that we would proclaim that those who practice deceit would not dwell within our house and that every morning we look to you to remove the wicked and to cut off from the city and from our congregation all those who do iniquity and in their place, Father, build in each of us hearts to obey and hearts that seek to please you. Let the word of God, Father, as it lives in our hearts and as it rests in our laps this morning, guide us and direct us into all righteousness. Let us live according to the things we proclaim. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I promised early in our study of Joseph and the Toldot of Jacob, which is what we're studying right now, I said that the sovereignty of God would play a leading role in this story. And I think you'll agree in what we've studied so far that that's been the case. Because we've been watching Jacob, we've been watching Jacob's sons make various decisions, devise schemes, follow the evil and the sin in their hearts. But the real actor driving forward the narrative of this story has actually been the Lord himself. He's fulfilling promises. He's deciding outcomes. He is the one who is fulfilling all his purposes. And so as the men of our story are planning all their ways, we know from Scripture it is the Lord directing their steps. Now, we've also focused on Joseph as a picture of Christ. So a second theme of this story so far has been the way in which God used a man named Joseph so that all these various details in his life would eventually become clear pictures of things later to come in the life of Jesus. All these parallels that we've discovered so far and more to come. Many of these parallels reflect Jesus' first coming, but then increasingly in our story, the parallels are going to point forward to Jesus' second coming. From this point forward in the story of Joseph, from where we are today, these two storylines, the storyline of God's sovereignty and the storyline of Joseph picturing Christ, are going to begin to merge in a very interesting way. Scripture tells us that the Father saw fit to crush his son, Christ, the one he loved, and he did so for the good of all creation. Isaiah sums it up best. Isaiah 53.10, he says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So the father, we're told, saw fit to crush his own son on the cross, we know, to bring about a glorious outcome, that being the redemption of all creation from sin. So the suffering of Christ was made necessary as a way to achieve a good and proper end, according to Scripture. And likewise, the story of Joseph is going to move in a disturbing direction starting today. Joseph is going to suffer greatly for the cause of righteousness. 
He will do so not for his own faults. Like Job, he will suffer unjustly for God's good eternal purposes. Just as Christ did for all of us. So let's keep those two truths in mind as we move forward in the story. God in control, causing all things to happen as he intends, as he purposes. While at the same time, the suffering that results in Joseph's life is part of a larger plan to bring Joseph and Jacob and his sons and Israel and ultimately the world to a place that God expects and intends them to be. We'll go back in in chapter 37, picking up where we left off. Chapter 37, verse 29 is where we go this morning. Now Reuben returned to the pit and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? Well, let's pause. We remember from last week how Reuben was secretly working behind the scenes to manipulate his brothers in this moment so that he could eventually find a way to free Joseph and send Joseph back home to dad. Now, Reuben was the oldest son, of course, and as the oldest, we said last week, he would be held personally responsible by the father, by Jacob, for anything that happened to his brothers while they were away from the home. So when he learned earlier that his brothers were intent on killing Joseph, he determined at that moment, secretly in his own heart, to free Joseph from the pit and send Joseph back home. And his decision, though it may have reflected some love for Joseph, and maybe even for his father, for that matter, more likely his motivation for doing all of this was to save his own skin because he had the great potential to come back home without Joseph and find himself held responsible for that death and even perhaps to face the penalty of death himself, which would not have been out of keeping for what was traditional in those days. So he's acting here, but he's acting largely out of self-interest. Now we learn that Judah and his brothers have sold Joseph to those slave traders that we looked at last week, and they appear to have done that when Reuben was not around. That's the only explanation for what we read this morning, because Reuben appears to have come back to the pit and to have been surprised to find that Joseph's not there. He reacts here immediately with dismay. He tears his clothes, we are told. Now, that may seem like a strange tradition to us, but men in the East commonly rip their clothing as a sign or as a display of intense grief, and they still do that today. If you've ever caught images on the television of some event in the Middle East, some tragic death, uh, some kind of distress in that region, and people are mourning in the streets, you'll often see them ripping clothes. It's a traditional way of mourning. So it tells us that Reuben is severely stressed over the discovery and he is now ready to confront his brothers about it. So the the next thing we hear is he comes to his brothers and he says, the boy's gone. He's not in the pit. Well, it's no surprise to them. They're the ones who sold him. But it's a surprise to Reuben. They probably tell Reuben, though we don't have it in the text, they probably tell Reuben at this point what they've done. And they're probably proud of themselves. We avoided being guilty of murder and we profited from the whole arrangement, and we solved our problem. Now, Reuben's first thought is very revealing. The first thing that comes out of his mouth tells us an awful lot about what's going on in his heart. First thing out of his mouth is, what will become of me? That's where his self-centeredness was revealed. Reuben's real concern is for how it will go for him when Jacob learns that Joseph was sold out by his brothers. Now, the story never tells us where Reuben went during the time when Joseph was sold. 
He may have gone back and worked with the flock for a while. Maybe he went out in search of water. Maybe he had to relieve himself. We don't know what he did. The scripture doesn't talk about it. There are any number of scenarios that we could imagine for why he's gone. But whatever the earthly reason was, we also know the real cause for his absence was the Lord. The Lord knew Reuben's heart, and he knew that Reuben had intended, had planned to save his brother Joseph from the fate that was awaiting him while he sat in that pit. And therefore, we must conclude that God caused Reuben to be gone in some fashion when those slave traders arrived on the scene. And then, after the deal had been done and Joseph was gone, God allowed Reuben back to see what had happened. Now, can you look upon a negative experience in your life with an attitude that acknowledges that God sometimes works in this way? Sometimes the Lord will allow pain and suffering and disappointment and even heartbreak in our lives when it is the best way for him to obtain the eternal good that he is intent on producing. While we may not perceive those times in the moment, they are evidence of God at work. They are not evidence that God does not love us. They are not evidence that God is out to get us. The truth will always be very different. Consider Reuben's situation for a minute. What do you think Reuben thought he was doing in the moment as he devised that plan in his heart to save his brother Joseph? I would imagine, and I think it's safe to assume, that Reuben believed he was doing the right thing. Reuben thought, if I free my brother, I'll save my skin, I'll certainly save Joseph, and my dad will be happier for the sake of Joseph. He might have also assumed that God would surely support him in that plan. Wouldn't God automatically be expected to support somebody who wants to save someone else from harm? That's the natural assumption. But we know this story. And especially if you've read the whole thing, you know, God did not want to free Joseph. God wanted Joseph in Egypt. In fact, God wants all Israel in Egypt for hundreds of years. So Joseph is destined to go to Egypt and the brothers evil plan was their own sin. But nonetheless, it is the mechanism that God has chosen to use to bring about the result he wants. Now, you may not find yourself in a situation in which you have to save your brother or sister from a pit. But I can tell you that if you find yourself working for an outcome, assuming it is the one God wants, because it looks right to your own eyes, and then for some reason that plan falls through, remember, the Lord is still on the throne. The Lord is still sovereign, which means he hasn't lost touch, which means what just happened happened for some good reason. Acknowledging that reality does not mean that we have dismissed our circumstances simply as fate and therefore outside our understanding. This is not a way of compensating for our lack of understanding and we just sort of give up on the whole problem and say, well, I can't figure it out. So be it. It's fate. That's not what we're asking you to do. And that's not what Scripture is asking us to do. Knowing God is at work leads us to align with that work, not to give up, but to join in but to join in in the right direction, to go with him instead of against him. I believe you can group Christian opinions about the way God works in our world and about the way his sovereignty works in our lives into three different groups of opinion. First, there are those who believe that God created the world and the universe, and then like a spinning top, he just stands back and watches it work itself out. And like that spinning top, his hand never touches it again. Since the moment he started it, so to speak, he just waits and watches and lets it be. 
And then there's a second group of Christians who believe that God created the world and he continues to intervene in it to change the course of history from time to time. He intervenes both in natural ways and he also intervenes in supernatural ways sometimes. And he does it for good purpose. And ultimately, he brings all these desired outcomes to the place that he wishes. But in this second view is a principle that there are still some things outside God's control. Some things are not under God's hand. Some things happen for other reasons beyond what God himself desires. For example, they would see that evil is an independent force under the control of the enemy, fighting and contending with God. And that there is God's desires and then there are the enemy's desires. And sometimes God's desires rule and then sometimes the enemy gets in the upper hand for a moment. They would also probably assert that men themselves operate in some freedom from God's direct control. That our will is also another force in the universe and what men will to do will happen according to their desires. So there's God doing his thing, there's the enemy doing his thing, and then there's man doing his thing. And that's the second view I've seen. And then finally, there's a third group. Those who would say God's sovereignty has no limit. That all things are created by him. That all things are sustained by him. He doesn't just intervene in history from time to time. He writes every page of history. He directs all things. He controls all things. He governs all things so that all that happens on earth may happen according to a preordained One example of that third view is found in the 1689 Confession of Faith, which was very common among Protestant faiths of the 17th, 18th century. And I'll read you one piece of that confession as it relates to this topic of sovereignty. And listen to the words that were common confession among Christians, among Protestants for hundreds of years. God who in infinite power and wisdom has created all things, upholds, directs, controls, and governs them, both animate and inanimate, great and small, by a providence supremely wise and holy, and in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable decisions of his will. He fulfills the purposes for which he created them so that his wisdom, power, and justice, together with his infinite goodness and mercy, might be praised and glorified. Nothing happens by chance or outside the sphere of God's providence. As God is the first cause of all events, they happen immutable and infallibly according to his foreknowledge and decree to which they stand related. Yet by his providence, God controls them. That second causes operating either as fixed laws or freely or in dependence upon other causes play their part in bringing them about. Now, some might criticize those Christians who would hold the third view and say, you know, you're just adhering to fatalism. Uh, You're just saying that whatever is was meant to be. Whatever will happen will happen. That you're not really explaining anything. You're just giving up with no explanation. Well, Charles Spurgeon has a great response to that thought. To someone who would suggest that God is not actually capable of controlling all things, Charles Spurgeon says this. What is fate? He asks. Fate says whatever is must be. There is a difference between that and providence. Providence says whatever God ordains must be. 
But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some great end. Fate does not say that. There is all the difference between fate and providence as there is between a man with good eyes and a man with blind eyes. The point is that the third group asserts that God is in fact in control of all things, not because we have no better explanation, but because we know God is working to some very specific purpose and all of these points line up to get to that purpose. And he reveals his purpose in Scripture. I think most unbelievers fall into the first group. That's assuming they're not atheists. Meaning they are content to assume that there is some higher power out there, but their pride and their heart's hardness will never allow them to concede that this higher power is actually controlling anything in their lives. And I think there are some Christians who fall into this group too. Most Christians, I think, are probably in group two. Most Christians who have not studied this in depth probably land somewhere in group two. Yeah, there's a God. He does control some things, but there's also other things in the world besides God's control. They believe, for example, in prophecy, but they probably attribute God's prophecy to being more foreknowledge than predestination. He knows something about the future rather than he actually controls the outcome of the future. And their belief in sovereignty will turn to uncertainty when they're asked to draw the line between his control and something else. When someone suggests that there can be another source of outcomes in the world other than God, the first question I ask them is, well, give me an example of something that's not under God's control. That usually becomes a very difficult conversation. And for good reason, because Scripture tells us that every decision of every man's heart is under God's control. That even our personal choices, even our sinful choices, fall under his control. And that's why I think very few Christians, in my experience, are willing to venture into category three. Few have even heard it suggested, I think, that God has that degree of control. But that's what Scripture tells us. When you consider some great tragedy in your life, when you look in the world and you see something happen that seems unexplainably evil, unexplainably desperately wicked, like, for example, putting yourself in Joseph's situation for a moment, and you say to yourself, how could that happen? You might even be tempted to say, how could a loving God let something like that happen? Ironically, if you've ever asked that question, you have unknowingly placed yourself in group three. Because what you just said implies that you believe God could have changed those course of events, that God could have affected the outcome. He could have led it somewhere differently than he did. And by asking the question, you're assuming he could do something to stop it. Like, for example, he could have prevented the sons of Jacob from selling Joseph into slavery. Absolutely, he could. He could have ensured that Reuben was present in the right moment to stop that sale from happening. Absolutely, he could. And because he could, and because he didn't, the only conclusion we draw is he wanted it the way it was. And when we look around our world and we see things we don't understand, it is not fatalism to say that's just the way it had to be. It's insight informed by Scripture that brings us to the conclusion God in some way beyond our understanding, according to his wisdom and his eternal purpose, intended it this way. Jesus himself could have sought for something greater in his own ministry than to die on a cross, but that was the best and right thing for him to do, as bad as it was for him to experience it. 
Reuben hasn't acknowledged that fact. He is crying, woe is me at this point. Woe is me that I have to experience this. Woe is me that I have to tell dad. Woe is me that I have to explain it. Rather than to understand that God has a purpose in it. I have a little bit of pity for Reuben in the story of Joseph because he seems to make the wrong decision every time we see him doing something. Remember, he first violates his father's trust by sleeping with the concubine. The next thing we see in the story of Reuben is here. He tries to do the right thing, but he's actually working against God. He's actually not in God's will. Later, we're going to see him try to do the right thing for his other brother, Benjamin. And again, he's not in God's will. And God has to undermine what he wants to do. There's only two times that we know of in the story of Reuben when he tries to do the right thing. And in both cases, they have a selfish motive. And in both cases, they're the opposite of what God wants. And in both cases, God frustrates him. He is an excellent example in Scripture of a man who lives entirely out of touch with the Lord and the Lord's work. Even when he thinks he's doing the right thing, he's following his flesh. He's got selfish motives. He's trying to save his own skin. Verse 31. So then they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. They sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Reuben didn't want to be blamed for Joseph's disappearance. He concocts with his brothers this story in which Joseph will have been eaten by an animal before Joseph ever arrived at Dotham, before Joseph was ever able to reach his brothers. This event supposedly happened. And to make that story convincing, they slaughter a male goat. They dip the tunic that they've taken off their brother into the blood. And of course, the goal was to make it look as if he had been torn asunder by some wild animal. Now, that robe is the key because it's so unique. It was something distinctive that they knew only Joseph could be associated with. And it becomes the proof for Jacob to know that his son has died. It appears to have happened without the son's involvement at all. There's no tracing back to them. There's no way they could be accused of having done anything wrong. It's a perfect alibi. The death of a goat, though, in the process of promulgating this lie is an interesting detail. It creates a fascinating parallel to the story of Christ. In Leviticus 16, later in the the law, the books of Moses, the law provides for a certain ritual within the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement. In this ritual, there are two goats involved. There's one goat which is assigned the responsibility or the role of carrying the sins of Israel symbolically, And a priest lays his hands on this goat and pronounces that the sins of Israel now rest on this animal. And then that animal is set outside the city and forced to leave the assembly of Israel, never to return. That animal carries a very unique name, which we've all heard is called the scapegoat. The second goat of the two is taken inside the temple and is sacrificed on the altar and its blood is poured on the altar in the temple. Now, in the way that ritual is prescribed, there is a picture in Leviticus 16 of Jesus 
by both of these goats. In the case of the first goat, Jesus was the scapegoat because Jesus himself was crucified outside the city walls of Jerusalem. He was taken outside the city like that scapegoat, and he was carrying the sins of the world as he went out and put himself on that cross. So Jesus is the scapegoat. But he is also the one whose blood is spilled to atone for the guilt of men and to cleanse us from our sin and to cleanse the altar in heaven, Hebrews says. So Jesus is not only the scapegoat, he is the sacrificial one on the altar. Now, in this scene of Joseph's day, you find both goats. First, Joseph himself pictures Christ as the scapegoat. Joseph is sent outside the assembly of his brothers, outside the assembly of Israel, outside the family of Israel. He is sent away carrying the weight of his brother's sin, not of his own, but of the sin of his brothers, which resulted in him being sent away in this fashion. The other goat is also pictured in this story. It's the goat that was sacrificed to produce the blood for the tunic that has been slaughtered to cover the brother's guilt. To cover their sin, as it were, certainly not to atone for it, but to cover it in the sense of to cover it up. Both goats represented here in the picture. Now, when the brothers get home, they meet their father and it says they sent for the robe and gave it to their father. They sent for the robe. That would seem to suggest that their conspiracy went a step further. They arranged for this thing to be found or to be brought in by a servant. So as if to wipe their hands of it entirely, they had nothing to do with it. Uh, Somebody reported finding a tunic. Uh, Could you get that tunic we found? Yes, bring it in. Thank you. Father, is this the one that brother had? They act as if someone else had come upon it. Now, they know immediately what will happen when the father sees the tunic. It's too unique. It's all designed to be seen and understood. And of course, it works. But look at how it works. Jacob produces his own lie. Jacob concludes that the wild beasts have devoured his beloved son. No one suggests that storyline to him. All the brothers ask is, is this belong to anybody you know? And from there, Jacob builds his own lie. Now, do you remember how Jacob obtained what he wanted from his father a few chapters back? He presented himself as Esau, deceiving his father by means of a goat. Goat skin in the case of Jacob. Goat blood now being used to deceive him. But what's interesting is he deceives himself. While he deceived his father with goat, he deceives himself with goat's blood. Do you see the hand of God visiting Jacob's sins upon himself in this moment? I do. And that is not to suggest that at every turn God will bring our sin back upon us in like kind, though he is certainly capable of doing so, and he will from time to time, but praise the Lord, he doesn't. Can you imagine living in the state in which every sin you commit came back upon you in some fashion? We would be crushed by that weight. But occasionally, when it suits his purposes, when it's made necessary by our hardened hearts, he will do so. And he is doing it here. And Jacob, for his part, he's understandably crushed by the supposed loss of Joseph. He mourns, we're told, like Reuben did earlier. We see Jacob ripping his clothing here in distress. He mourns, we're told, for many days. He refuses to be consoled by anyone. He even goes to the point of lamenting that his soul will go down to Sheol from his own mourning. 
That takes a moment of explanation just to be clear on what he's saying about himself. Sheol is a reference in the Old Testament to the place where departed souls would go and spend a time of waiting prior to Christ's death and resurrection. Before Christ died on the cross and made payment for our sin, men, even saints, even a saint like Jacob or Isaac before him or or Abraham before him, those men could not have gone into the presence of the Lord after their death, though they were righteous by faith, because there had not yet been payment for their sin made on the cross. So as a way of putting that moment off until it could happen, God prepared a place of comfort to hold the souls of those who had died in faith. And that place of comfort was part of Sheol. So Sheol is a holding place for departed spirits. Part of it, one side of it, if you will, is a side reserved for the saints. In the New Testament, it's called Abraham's bosom. And the other half, though, is Hades, or the place for the unbelieving souls. One is a place of comfort, one is a place of torment. At the point of Christ's death and his descent, and then later his ascension into heaven, he, we're told in the New Testament, set free the captives. He took with him the souls of those who had died in faith. The saints are no longer being held in a place of holding like Sheol. They are present with the Lord in the throne room, we are told. So this was a temporary place made necessary by the waiting for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Today, if you and I die, or when we die, we will not be with Sheol. We will be with the Lord at his side. So the point of Jacob's statement is simply to say he is so sad for Joseph that his sadness will kill him and lead him to die and be in Sheol, which is where he knew he would go. I wonder if the depths of his mourning surprised his sons at all. Maybe I just want to have a soft spot in my heart for these kids. Maybe I want to see them as being more than the monsters they seem to be, at least as far as the story goes so far. But did Jacob's suffering cause them any regret? As they watch him deal with the news, did it create any second thoughts about what they did? Jacob's response must have been a powerful reminder to the sons that sin has consequences and those consequences reach far beyond ourselves. They wanted Joseph gone because they hated him and they didn't like the competition for authority in the family. And they thought the easiest way to solve that problem was just to get rid of him and they wouldn't miss him. They didn't care anything about him. But they caused their father untold pain to say nothing of Joseph's misery, by the way. How do you think Joseph felt sitting in that slave trade caravan in chains, probably being dragged down to Egypt? You think he shed a few tears sitting in that thing, wondering why his own flesh and blood would have sold him out in that way? I imagine he did. Our sins have the potential to bring terrible consequences on us and others even many years later. And you and I can't begin to understand the seeds we're planting when we make decisions to sin here and now. By the time we understand the consequences to their fullest, it's too late to reverse them. It's better to avoid the sin in the first place, wouldn't you agree? And do so because of the fear of the Lord. The fear not only of what kind of future misery we're going to produce for ourselves or for others, but the fear of whatever consequence God may visit upon us because of our sin. So we leave chapter 37 and we prepare to enter chapter 38 next Sunday. And I want you to consider where we stand as we wrap up in this chapter. This is an important chapter in the story of Genesis and in Joseph's life. Joseph's on the way to Egypt. The brothers are guilty of a great sin. Jacob is the victim of that sin, but he is also the victim of his own sin that he sowed decades earlier. And above all that's happening right now, 
God is working to bring about promises that he gave to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. That being to move the family of Israel into Egypt in an appointed day. There is a second reason, though, why these events are happening. And that's why we have chapter 38. The second is also an issue of sin, sin in this family, but it's sin of a different sort. And in chapter 38, we're going to discover that second reason why the nation has to spend centuries in Egypt and in slavery in order for God to get the greater good that he has planned for the nation and for the world. And once again, that purpose traces back to promises God has made concerning his son. So that's where we go next time. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father. Help us to see you in the way you truly work in this world. Help us to understand the power of your sovereignty, how far your arm may reach into this world and into our lives. Help us, Father, to never diminish you so as to make excuse for what we see rather than to understand it as your work and to join in it. Help us to understand the power and the reach of our own sin so that we may fear you and fear the consequences should we continue to go forward in sin. And I pray, Father, that these lessons would cause us to be so Christ-like in our life that you may do mighty things through those who are weak and small, that you may glorify your name by the simple act of obedience in our lives. Let the time of Christmas, Father, if no other time of the year, at least this time of the year, be a reminder that you can bring small things into the world, meek things, mild and weak things, and yet you can change so many things with what you do. We thank you, Father, for this time of study. We thank you, Father, for this time of prayer and this time of fellowship. Let us take that attitude of worship with us as we leave this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.